Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I was going to tell you, my, my daughter is cutting teeth this week, so if it starts to sound a little more like babble, that's normal, but I probably will cry more than normal because that's what happens when I'm tired. But when you see how beautiful my wife looks and she's getting less sleep than me, it kind of rings false. Uh, I hope you guys are doing well. We are uh, in the middle of a series on Genesis, and since we're not doing children's church, we're, we're kind of trying to, to tie some things in with the kids, which mostly means that if you're a parent, you have to pay a little bit better attention because you know how kids remember things and then they go home and ask you questions? I'm going to ask them to ask you questions, okay? Uh, how, many, how many would identify themselves as a kid here today? All right, there's a few. How many of you guys have Legos at home? And I'm not talking about the Legos that you can build specific, you know, Star Wars. I'm talking about the original, they're bricks that you can make anything. You guys have those? Big, big boxes of them? Have you ever taken all of your Legos and built a tower as big as you could build it? What do you, what do you guys think if we combined all of the Legos in the room and then tried to build a huge tower? Do you think that it could reach outer space? I'm getting some no's. Houston, you think it could reach outer space? Yeah. The science is a little fuzzy on this. We're not sure yet. I don't, think, I don't think it's been tried. We might be able to reach the ceiling. Well, the story that we're looking at today, you guys, is a story about people who built a tower, and they wanted to build a really tall tower. So what I want you to do this week is at some point in the week, grab your mom or your dad and your box of Legos and ask them to help you build a tower. And while you're building the tower, ask them about Babel. And I want you to ask them this question. What does it mean to build your life into something? What does it mean to build your life into a tower? You got it? All right. That's what I want you to do this week. Report back to me next week. We'll see how it went. This is our Old Testament reading. It's from Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we learn in this short story, our language is so flimsy and it breaks down so easily. And what we realize is that we need your Spirit in order to talk with one another. 
in order to talk with you and in order to talk about you. So I ask that your spirit would be present in this place this morning, that we would have a sense of Jesus and his love for us in this place, and that my words would be used to speak your word to our hearts. We would see the monument that you wish us to build. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for those of you that are uh, too old to play with Legos much anymore, you might remember uh, September 11th, uh, the September 11th. And we all have stories about where we were and what we were doing uh, when we found out what was going on. And what was going on was two planes had been hijacked and flown into the Twin Towers in New York City, and another plane had been hijacked and crashed uh, somewhere else I don't even remember at this point, but... As, as our nation has kind of developed this conversation around what happened on 9-11, do you remember all of the, just the, the hair-pulling arguments about what should happen at Ground Zero and how are we going to build a fitting memorial? And then, oh, when the news came out that there was a mosque that was being planned on, on being built near Ground Zero, well, the hullabaloo just grew exponentially. And, and the reason why is because all of these things are actually interrelated. The very reason that those towers were targeted in the first place is the very reason that, that people were either very in favor or very against a mosque being built near the memorial. And that is, these spaces have meaning. They have meaning for our culture. They tell us something about what we find important. They point to something outside of themselves. Our story this morning is an extremely tightly written story. It's almost like the, the original tweet-length story of the ancient literature, and it's about one of the most mythic cities in the ancient Near East, the city of Babylon. And it's one of those stories that has gotten so washed away into our own assumed interpretations that it will actually take a bit of digging to get down to the core of the meaning of this story before we turn to look at some implications of our lives. Because traditionally, the, the way that our sort of Christian subculture has, has just allowed the story to kind of filter into our own ideas is that it's really about pride. It's just about human beings doing something prideful. But I think as we start to dig through some of the details, we'll see that it's actually a little more subtle than that. So we're going to begin by looking at some linguistic details, and then we're just going to kind of start this slow spiral inward. Now, starting right out of the gate, it's, it's hard to even sympathize with people like what we're finding in this story because, I mean, come on. How are we supposed to think about people that, that literally seem to think they can build a tower high enough to reach God, that they're just going to somehow put another layer of bricks and get there. I mean, as you saw already this morning, even our children don't think that their Legos can reach outer space. That isn't even really the most troubling thing to me. The most troubling is, is what do we do with the picture of God that we're given here? Because he comes off as a real nail biter. He seems like he's really concerned that humanity is going to get on this runaway train and overpower him. What do we do with the fact that he doesn't seem to know what's going on until he comes down to the city and then seems so freaked out that humanity is going to be unstoppable? Well, just as we found with a lot of the other stories in this early uh, proto-history in Genesis, the writers of this ancient narrative were not concerned with science and history on modern terms. They had no idea what sort of historiography we would be doing later on. They were not trying to write down a very specific history 
that has a bunch of facts laid out for us. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying they're actually writing something that's much deeper, much more complex. There are realities of the human experience that these ancient authors are trying to convey to their readers. So let me give you an overview of the story as we begin. And if you have your, your order of worship there, um, if you were to take each verse, as, we've, as we have versed them out, verses 1 through 9, and indent them further until you get to verse 5 and then start to, to pull them back, you could actually turn the text on the side and you would have the shape of a tower. The architect of our story has done something very, very intentional with his poetry. He has made his story into a ziggurat, into an ancient tower of, of ancient cities. And what he's doing as, as he writes out this story for us, he is giving us two sides of a tower, of a building, that mirror each other. They're exact opposites of each other. The first half is about humankind and their intentions. And the second half is about God and his intentions, which directly contravene the first half. And right in the middle, the very spire of the tower, is that we learn that God is coming to town. And it is in this slamming together of human will and divine will that almost the entire human story, all of human history, can find itself. The people say to themselves, come on, let's bake some bricks and build a city with a tower in the middle. Why? So we don't get scattered across the earth. Well, who said anything about getting scattered across the earth? Why are they afraid of this? Well, if we can remember way back to Genesis 1, after God creates humanity and he blesses them and he tells them, be fruitful and increase and answer your cell phones. Be fruitful and increase and what? Spread out over the entire earth. The creation plan of God is to have image bearers, his representatives throughout the earth that mirror his love out into his world and mirror the beauty of his world back to himself. God actually repeats this mandate again to Noah and his family after the flood waters subside. Go out into all the earth and multiply. Now, one of the things that, that many of the early narratives in Genesis are trying to show us, some of which we've actually skipped over, is that the relational fabric between God and humanity has been absolutely shredded in the fall. Adam and Eve chose autonomy over trust. And within a generation, murder is committed, brother against brother. And then subsequent chapters in Genesis have these strange tales about the sons of God and the daughters of men, about Cain, the murderer, being marked and building a city, about mighty hunters roaming the earth. And as we saw last week, the entire human project just devolves into absolute violence, evil, and decay. Now, Brian already navigated that very difficult story of Noah and God's judgment and cleansing of the earth through water, so I'm not going to recap it here. But this story of Babel comes right on the heels of the Noah story. And God has already made a renewed covenant with humanity, and so we kind of have this expectation going in that the relational fabric is being woven back together and maybe things will be better. But as this narrative shows, that hasn't happened at all. Consider that poetic structure of the tower. On the one side of the tower, the first half, humanity is talking amongst themselves. There is absolutely no consulting of God, no attempt at working in relationship to him. Rather, they have a skewed understanding of God and of his creation project, and so they react in fear and disobedience, and they build a city and a monument that reflects that fear and disobedience. 
Michael Reeves is a Trinitarian scholar who does work with university students, and he tells about how he, he goes around and he, he has meetings with atheist and agnostic university students, and he asks them to describe the God that they don't believe in. And he said, more often than not, they actually describe the biblical character of Satan rather than the biblical character of the triune God. And it's this sort of backwards vision of God that's being hinted at in this story. And there's actually a, a, a really uh, interesting, linguist, interesting to me, linguistic thing that the author does here. Hebrew is based on, the Hebrew language is based on three consonantal sounds. Every word is based on three consonantal sounds. And there are three consonants at the, in the first half of the story that get repeated over and over and over again. So sort of like XYZ, 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 XYZ. When God comes to town, those consonants get reversed. ZYX, ZYX, ZYX. What the author is showing us is that the intentions of God and the intentions of man could not be more opposite from each other. And not only that, but it shows how backwards humans have managed to conceive of God. They have completely failed to understand him. They have so managed to misunderstand God that their attempts at reaching him, Babylon, Babylon means gate of heaven. So their attempt at the gate of heaven is turned at the very end of the story into a reversal, Babel, which just means blah, 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 confusion. When the people say they want to build a tower to heaven, odds are they weren't naive enough to think that if they could just get one more layer of brick, they're just going to somehow bump into God's cloudy palace. No, this is more likely a way of describing their intentions and the meaning that they were infusing to this monument. Either they were simply describing a tower that was going to be really, really tall, saying that it would extend up into the sky to be a reflection of their own glory, or the tower was to serve an expressly religious purpose, that this was to actually be a temple at the center of the city, that they would build their own religion, find their own way to God, and use it as a gateway to heaven that they could climb into God's realm. Either way, it's an attempt to find meaning on their own terms. But just as the people aren't as naive as we first think upon reading this, neither is God's response really one of hand-wringing. It's more what he's saying here literally is that since the people have a common language, that in this instance they will be able to do all that they want. So whether it's just building a city that is a monument to their own greatness or developing their own religion as a way of finding their way to God, they're going to be able to do it by having a common language. And likewise, when God goes down to the city to see what's been happening, it's not because he doesn't know. It's not because he's not aware of what they've been doing. This is actually a very sort of snide and sarcastic remark on the part of the narrator. Here, humankind has undertaken their grandest venture yet, and God's like, ah, I can't really see it from up here. I'll have to go down, I guess, and, and get a closer look because it's so tiny compared to what I have going on. God has to descend just to see the greatest thing that man has ever done. Now, as with any good story, it's important to understand and follow the point of conflict. As I said earlier, God has already mandated that humanity spread out across the earth in order that his creative purposes might be fulfilled, that he might have representatives of himself dwelling in and cultivating his world. So the tension of this story is not so much the hubris and pride of humanity in attempting to build a tall tower, though that is part of the human problem, nor is it primarily their attempt at making their own religion, though that is definitely related. 
The issue here is that they resist the scattering that God has designed for his creation project based on a misplaced fear and based in rebellion toward God. Apart from God, they wanted a land to themselves, a name for themselves, and a religion of their own making. They wanted a monument that would reflect themselves rather than God. And in fact, this is the beginning of Scripture's tale of two cities. Because in the very next chapter, which we're not going to look at in this series, we meet Abram. So let me just give you a, a little hint as to what's going to happen in the very next chapter because they actually go together quite nicely. When God calls Abram, he tells him that he himself will give to Abram a land, a name that will be great, and that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so in these two chapters, we are being given the spiritual history of the two great biblical cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. As Augustine would say it, the city of man and the city of God. So when we see the point of tension here, we'll be able to trace the point of tension to our own lives. And the point of tension is this. When the relational fabric of the world is set right, the most unifying factor for humanity is their shared loyalty to God. But in the disintegration of that relational fabric, there is a unity that is altogether unhealthy for humanity because it is set up as a way to keep God out rather than allow him in. You see that? Unity is not necessarily always good or always bad. There is a unity that God desires, and there is a unity that humanity creates as a way of keeping God out rather than welcoming him in. And the people of Babylon are now forming this city as, as a way to protect themselves against the scattering of God. And it's this fearful protectionism that ends up in, this is how we'll keep ourselves safe. And that actually starts to breed harm and enslavement for the citizens of the city itself. When you consider that humanity was designed to build monuments that reflect God, an infinite God, anything smaller is going to eventually feel like a prison house. My wife and I don't own a TV. Uh, that could sound like moral grandstanding, but just wait till you hear what I'm about to say. So when we go on vacation and we stay in a hotel, there's usually a TV there, and so we binge on like lowest common denominator shows available. Uh, usually they're on TLC. And there was this one time that we watched this show called My Weird Obsession or something. Anybody? Fans? No one's willing to admit it? You can confess that next week. And there was this episode of this middle-aged couple who has a collection of literally thousands of Cabbage Patch dolls. And they have built a climate-controlled housing situation for these dolls. And it's not just a collection, because they actually name them and interact with them. And then, more mind-blowingly, is that they have found a community of like-minded adults who have the exact same Cabbage Patch communities, and they get together for playdates, okay? And they bring their Cabbage Patch dolls together to hang out, and they let them swing on swings, and they go for picnics and, and everything. Now, what's sadder? watching a TV show about that, right? That's, that's what's sadder. <laughs> Why do we like these shows? I mean, do you have any idea the kind of work and money that is involved in producing a television show? This isn't just some guy, you know, with a handheld camera walking around his garage with a bunch of Cabbage Patch dolls. This, this is professional production. People are watching. 
Why do we do it? Why do we watch these sorts of shows? Well, I'll tell you why. It makes us feel like the monuments that we're building with our lives are so much bigger and better than someone who is wasting all of their time and money on a collection of Cabbage Patch dolls. This has been happening since the beginning of time. Consider Babylon herself. We read in the pages of the Old Testament that when Babylon would conquer other nations, she would steal away the leaders of those nations and bring them back to her capital and basically make them culturally assimilate, make them Babylonian. And whoever she didn't kill, she would ship around to various parts of her empire in an order to homogenize all people, boiling down any and all differences into nothing more than loyalty to the state and the gods that the state has sanctioned. This is the sort of city that burns and murders those who refuse to engage in their idolatry. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is seen in Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets as a metropolitan city, a truly international scene where the true triune God is worshipped. Isaiah has a vision that there is a wide highway coming from Egypt to Assyria, walking all the way up to Jerusalem, Egypt and Assyria being the two greatest enemies of Israel. And yet there's a highway that is built so that these nations might stream into Jerusalem to come and worship Yahweh, to come and worship the true God. All nations don't simply become one homogenous mess, but all nations are bound together in their love and loyalty to Yahweh. This is a city that beats swords and spears into farming equipment. The city of man becomes interminably small. There's no room for diversity, no room for dissent or discussion. It shrinks down and down and down. The city of God is wide. It sits on a hill and has major highways built to allow all nations to stream into her monument. And if you're a student of history, you know that the city of man keeps replaying itself all over the world through all times. We could start just a few hundred years ago in the French Revolution. The people successfully overthrow the monarchy, the traditional power structures, and they cut down effectively the Catholic Church in France only to find themselves with a new religion. It's the religion of freedom. And the second that freedom is impinged upon, you're going to feel the guillotine at the back of your neck. Our own nation. We were so drunk on freedom at the time that we thought what the French were doing was so great until we actually realized that everyone was in fear for their lives. Freedom was not so great at the time. Fast forward a little bit. The Bolshevik Revolution is the same story with different names. Even in the last few decades, we have seen attempts from dictators like Pol Pot to homogenize entire nations into whatever agrarian ideal has caught their fancy, leaving nothing but death and destruction in their wake. Because when unity is predicated on something other than love for and loyalty to God, there is always, 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 always an other that suffers in alienation. This sort of tribalism that fears the other and leads to violence in the name of protection and freedom has worked ruin in Darfur, the Eastern Bloc, Rwanda, and the Middle East, but not in America, right? We don't struggle with those sorts of fears that lead to tribal violence here, do we? The judgment that God pronounces upon the people at Babel is a sort of self-fulfillment of this type of tribalism that works to actually compound the problem. When the NIV says, let's confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other, more literally what it's saying is, let's confuse their language so that they won't listen 
to each other. This sort of non-listening tribalism plagues families, communities, cities, and nations. And the reason this trait persists is because the lure of Babylon isn't out there in the big bad city. It's in here. It's within our own hearts. Because just like the Babylonians, we are all in search of the same thing, justification. We have all made our lives a monument to something. We are building our lives into something that will give us meaning. And when someone else tries to tear down our tower, we get upset. Some of us try to build a monument with our work. And our career becomes the most important thing that shuts out all other things. Then on the flip side, some of us try to build a monument out of our family. And if we could just raise the perfect kids, if we could just maintain the perfect spouse, then our life would have meaning. And huge portions, especially of more traditional culture, have devoted their entire lives to attaining and maintaining a storybook family, only to find out that even that is too small. Some of us seek our justification in sexuality. There are those who look for justification through sexual promiscuity and variety, and so when anyone has a question about their loose moral standards, they get upset. But likewise, those of us who have predicated our meaning on sexual purity tend to get really red in the face when we're met with anyone who has a different sort of moral than we do. The same can be true of how we use our money. Some of us need the newest gadgets, the latest books and movies, or better vacation, and we spend money on new things and new experiences in order to what? To feel alive, to feel worthwhile. And any time anyone questions us about our spending, we get our hair up. But on the other hand, some of us upcycle. We buy secondhand clothes, we don't go on vacation, and we, and we give our money away. And when we're met with people who shop at stores that we don't like their buying practices or who spend money on things that we would never spend money on, we become the money police. And rather than actually trying to understand them, we just shout past each other and we don't listen. We do this sort of non-listening tribalism with everything, with things as, as small as our music choices, our transportation choices, all the way up to our politics. And, oh, don't we love to do it with our theology? Don't we love to do it with the way that we do church? Rather than remain unified in our love for and loyalty to God, we can end up remaining loyal to our ideas about God and unified only to those who share those views and everyone else is seen as an enemy. Non-listening tribalism has, has become the inheritance of the human race and it infects everything that we do. So what's the way out? I mean, how are we supposed to open ourselves up to to the potential of the scattering of God when we are so good at building ourselves, building our lives into towers that reflect our own glory? Well, there is only one way out, and it will require a very different sort of monument. It will require a reversal of all monuments, really. Just as God here brings about a direct reversal to man's intentions, he is pointing to the greatest reversal of all time. Because rather than build a monument to himself in the center of the city, Jesus comes down and walks outside the city toward the garbage heap and is lifted up in a monument to death and failure. He dies with criminals, misfits, 
anyone who deserved execution, that is where God goes. And Jesus is in every human sense a monument to failure. Because rather than assist humanity in their project of ascension, Jesus turns the entire world upside down and descends all the way into death. But the beauty of the Christian story is that that's not the end. Although that is the very monument, Jesus has now begun to build for himself a city, a monument, and he is calling people from every tribe and nation. And in this new monument, in this new community, the church, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but simply Christ all and in all. And he himself who is at the center of the city of God, and in town is an outpost of that city. The monument that we are being built into, if you are a part of the church of Jesus, the monument that you are being built into, the monument that gives shape to our lives as individuals and a community is embodied in this table, which is why every week we say that as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again because that is the monument that gives our life shape. That is the only monument that will not eventually become a prison cell because it is the monument that God has designed for us to be built up into. And it's a monument that can only be built up on the other side of being torn down in the shredding apart of Christ's flesh and the spilling of his blood. So if you are part of his church, in a moment we will come to this table so that we can be built up into the monument of God together as one body. Let's pray together. Father, we have become so adept at making meaning for ourselves in our work, in our family, in our moral record. And yet when we see Jesus coming and living the life that we should have lived, living in relational unity with you, and see him take on our punishment, being built up as a monument that is death to bring life. We are struck with the fact that all of our attempts at meaning have been far too small. So I ask that you would build us up into yourself, that we might become a monument to your glory, to your love, and to your mercy, that this city and this world would recognize yourself as we are built up into you. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.